Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, Julie Dograu. Tufts University professor and author of After Emily, Two Remarkable Women and the Legacy of America's Greatest Poet, published by W.W. Norton and Company in 2018. The great American poet alluded to in Julie's book title is Emily Dickinson, but the two remarkable women who were the subjects of Dobrow's biography were truly special because of their association with Dickinson and with each other. These two remarkable women were Mabel Loomis Todd and her daughter, Millicent Todd Bingham. And I found them because I've always been an avid biography reader myself. And it was in reading biographies of Emily Dickinson that I first discovered Mabel Loomis Todd, who was one of Dickinson's first editors. The more I discovered about Mabel, the more I was intrigued. And then I realized that she had an equally remarkable daughter named Millicent, and that there was relatively nothing known about these two women. There had never been a full-length biographical treatment of either woman. And then I discovered that there were more than 700 boxes of unmined papers sitting in Yale University, where my daughter had just started her freshman year. And so it seemed like kismet. It was a great story that I was interested in at a place I wanted to have good excuses to go visit. (laughs) Great reasons. But what made their lives interesting enough so that you would want to write a full-length biography of them? Sure. Well, it turns out that that they were both fascinating women who really pushed the envelope for what women of their respective eras did in terms of both their personal and their professional lives. Their work on Dickinson was arguably the most important accomplishment for both of them in their professional lives. And because it was about Emily Dickinson, it was important. But they did all these other really cool things. Mabel was a very accomplished artist and musician. She was extremely civically engaged, as many women in the 19th century were. But unlike many women, Mabel was also the founder and president of every organization of which she was a part. Um, Millicent was the first woman to get a PhD in geography and geology from Harvard, a degree she earned in 1923. And she had this incredibly promising academic career of her own that she jettisoned at age 49 when her mother asked her to help with the Dickinson work. Uh, The two of them also traveled the world at a time when very few Westerners did and fewer women still. And they left behind this enormous paper trail. So I had just almost unlimited sources and you know, literally tens of thousands of pages of insights into their daily lives. So it's something that is extremely rare for a biographer to find. And there's one other reason. Mabel and Millicent had an extremely complicated relationship with each other, something that is exceedingly well documented in their private papers. And this is a main theme in my book, and this is a big part of the story, and I think it really speaks to the extremely complex relationships between mothers and daughters, something to which anyone who is either a mother or daughter or anyone who knows a mother or daughter can relate. (laughs) How did you find this treasure trove of information? 
Well, it's pretty easy to find it. It's hiding in plain sight on the very well-crafted finding guides at Yale. Um, That was easy to find. Some of the other information that I found along the way wasn't quite as easy to unearth. Like many biographers, I utilized archives at many different libraries up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, One of the most interesting things I did get to root around in the attic of an old house looking at some of the unpublished papers of Richard Sewell, who was one of Emily Dickinson's major biographers. Hmm. That's a treasure trove of information right there. (laughs) It was. It was really fun to do. Wow. So now Mabel became Emily Dickinson's first editor. And so someone might ask, well, what made her qualified to do that? Well, um, that would be a good question because she wasn't somebody who had any formal literary training. Um, However, she was an avid reader herself. She was also uh, quite a good writer. And Mabel certainly had a lot of energy and enthusiasm. She also was involved in an ongoing multi-year relationship, uh, extramarital relationship with Emily's older brother, Austin, when both she and Austin were married to other people. And so although Mabel Loomis Todd never actually met Emily Dickinson face to face, Mabel, to the day that she died, felt that she had a very intimate relationship with Emily Dickinson. She referred to her often in her diaries and journals as my dear friend, Miss Emily Dickinson. And I think that it was uh, her very careful reading of the manuscripts, plus all of the different associations that she had with the Dickinson family, that gave her these insights into this poet whose work differed so radically from most 19th century poetic conventions. I guess the other thing that needs to be said is that Mabel for all of her self-defined qualifications, also was smart enough to realize that she was a woman in the 19th century. And in order to get this poetry published, she needed to have the help of somebody who was a man, uh, somebody who was very familiar with the 19th century publishing establishment and someone who had impeccable literary credentials himself. And that man was Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Right. And so let me ask you, before I get into their um, association, you talk about the controversy about how the poems, some of the poems were edited, Mm -hmm. uh, the giving of titles when Emily Dickinson did not title her poems, um, changing a word here and there how you interpret some of her various uh, versions of sure. poetry. It's extremely controversial. I mean, then there's no doubt about it. Mabel and Higginson did change words to make poems that scanned better. Um, they altered Dickinson's idiosyncratic use of punctuation. They regularized her use of capitalization. Uh, and as you mentioned, perhaps most controversially, They gave titles to poems that originally bore none. You know, of the 1,800 or so poems that we today know Dickinson to have written during her lifetime, only about a dozen of them actually originally bore titles. And Mabel and Higginson did all of this because they believed, uh, or he believed, and she agreed, that this is what needed to be done in order to get these poems published and accepted by the reading public in 1890. I will say that one of the things my research has uncovered is that while Mabel certainly went along with him, she didn't always agree with everything that he said. 
Um, particularly with regard to the titling of the poems. There's some indications in Mabel's diaries and journals that this was something that she wasn't quite sure one needed to do. Uh, And indeed, her daughter Millicent, who brought out a volume of Dickinson's poetry herself, also had many reservations about the titling of poems. They, they both of them felt that Dickinson's poetry actually spoke for itself and didn't necessarily need a title to direct readers to a particular interpretation. Mm-hmm. In terms of how you approached all of this material, because I'm sure that you had reams and reams of things to go through, how did you figure out how to whittle it down to a sizable wow, um, rate? that's a good question. <laughs> Um, Well, the first thing that I did was I read through Mabel's diaries and journals, and I did this for a very practical reason, which was that that was the only part of this enormous collection that I could get on microfilm and get on interlibrary loan. But it actually turned out to be a pretty good strategy because that enabled me to read about Mabel's life chronologically through her own eyes. Uh, And then I decided to do that with Millicent. So I started making trips to Yale and reading Millicent's diaries and journals. And from that, I was able to construct a timeline and to... um, try to figure out from their perspective what were the most important moments of their lives and who were the most important people. And from that, I started filling in and and then going through uh, these different boxes and trying to, to read as much as I could and to triangulate from secondary sources and from additional primary sources that I found elsewhere. But as you know, it's, it's very difficult to try to narrow it down. Um, there were things that ended up getting edited out of my book that I thought were really interesting parts of the story. I have been very fortunate to have a, a website that I've developed with a blog that I have total control over, uh, so that some of the things that ended up on the cutting room floor, so to speak, um, have been repurposed and have actually seen the light of day on my blog. And the blog is on your webpage? It is on my website. What's your website? Um, www.juliedobrow.com. All right, good. Who decided to save all of the diaries and letters and journals? Um, Well, it was really Millicent who we have to thank for the treasure trove that exists at Yale. They had a tradition in the Todd family of not throwing things out. Um, They were absolutely what we would call hoarders today. And Millicent actually came to believe that the story of her life, her mother's life, her grandparents' lives, that they were important and they should be saved. And because Millicent was trained as an academic, she felt very strongly that the family papers belonged in some sort of public repository. And then who donated to Yale? Millicent did. But it's actually an interesting story about how these papers came to Yale, because Millicent's first choice had not been to send them to Yale. She wanted to send them to Amherst College. She believed that Emily Dickinson's story really belonged in Amherst, because that's where Dickinson was born, that's where she did her work, that's where she died. And uh, similarly, Millicent had grown up partly in Amherst. Her father had been a professor at Amherst College for almost 40 years. And so Millicent's first choice was actually to give everything that she owned to Amherst College. In the 1940s, she approached Charles Cole, who was then president of Amherst College, and told him about what she had. He traveled to Washington, D.C. He was very excited about her Emily Dickinson papers, not so excited about the Todd papers, 
But he felt that he needed to say that he would accept all of them so that he could get the Dickinson papers, which he quite truthfully believed were priceless. So they started shipping all the stuff up to Amherst from Washington, D.C., where Amherst College processed the Dickinson papers and promptly put the Todd papers into storage. Um, At the same time, Richard Sewell at Yale was starting work on his very important biography of Emily Dickinson. He learned about Millicent and her papers. He convinced her that Yale would actually be a better home for her family papers than Amherst. Um, And in truth, Yale was set up to receive large document collections, whereas Amherst College was not. Uh, And Millicent agreed that, that Yale probably would be a better home for her family papers. And Amherst College, for its part, was only too glad to release her from the papers that she had signed. So they started shipping papers from Amherst to New Haven. Wow. Your book is really fascinating because it's not just a study of a mother and daughter relationship and writers and how writing, particularly on the, in the poetry world, gets from the originator to the world. But it's also a study of family relationships in terms of the Todd family and the relationship with the Dickinson family. Did you get any pushback from any of the family members in terms of researching and then writing the book? I didn't because there aren't any direct survivors. None? No. Millicent was an only child and she had no children. So she was last of the line, which was actually something I found quite poignant as I was doing my research. And None of Susan and Austin Dickinson's children had any children of their own. So there are no direct descendants. Wow. Which is not to say that there aren't people out there who feel very strongly about this story in one way or another. So while I haven't gotten any pushback from family members, uh, there certainly are people out there who have their own very, very strong opinions about the Dickinsons and the Todds. And the whole idea of the relationship between Mabel and Austin, and Austin and uh, Mabel's husband, David. And Sue, mm-hmm. David. And so I was just wondering, in terms of being the husband of this woman who's so dynamic and who he knows, I believe, has an extramarital affair with this um, other person, who was a prominent person in Amherst. Uh, Unquestionably. And that's usually the first question that I get asked when I do book events. Did David Todd know about what was going on between his wife and Austin Dickinson? The answer is yes, he absolutely knew. And then the second question that I most often ask is, well, why? And the answer is, like so many things, it's complicated. You have to realize that, for one thing, Austin Dickinson was serving as treasurer of Amherst College, so he was very literally the person who signed David Todd's paychecks. David was also himself a serial philanderer, and so he really felt that what Mabel was doing kind of gave him cover for his own behavior. Um, And the third thing that is probably the hardest for us to understand is that David Todd and Austin Dickinson actually had a really strong friendship. Um, They truly liked and respected each other. Uh, So this was an open marriage in the days before we had such terminology, uh, and it seemed to work for them. Uh, On the other hand, you're also talking about the 19th century. Right. And so if it was scandalous to even think about having an affair outside your marriage, to actually have one that was long term seemed to be extra scandalous. So 
I guess the question is, here's a woman who is a musician, an artist, a writer. Um, she is in the upper echelon of the Amherst Society. How did people react to um, this woman having this affair with a major prominent figure in, uh, in yeah. the city? Well, I think as is as, as the case um, so often that Austin had no repercussions for what was going on with them. Mabel, not so much. Um, She was really scorned. She was a scorned woman in a small college town. And, of course, when Susan Dickinson found out about the affair, she made it her business to try to make life as difficult for Mabel socially as she possibly could. And poor Millicent, who was growing up at the time there uh, and didn't really know what was going on, although I think she certainly knew that there were some odd things that were going on, although she might not have put the pieces of the puzzle together until she was uh, older. But Millicent was certainly aware at the time that she and her mother would be walking down the street in Amherst and people would cross the street when they saw them coming. She felt the scorn. And Mabel did too. I mean, Mabel wrote long, long passages in her journals about the martyrdom that she felt she was going through and uh, how cruel it was and how unjust she felt it was, seeming to have no clue of the fact that she had really torn apart this this other family. She was just so convinced of that the love that she and Austin shared was holier than anything. Uh, and indeed, they wrote about it in terms that mirrored some of the language that was going on um, with the religious reformations of the 19th century. They're really quite extraordinary love letters. Wow. What would you recommend to anyone who's looking at writing a biography about women of the 19th and early 20th centuries. I guess the the piece of advice that that I would pass along uh, to anybody trying to understand women in the 19th century is to try to find any sort of personal papers that existed, whether they are diaries or letters, or as I found, you know, there, there's a lot to be gained from even looking at marginalia, um, really literally the scraps of things that, that people wrote in margins. Um, I guess another thing that I learned from doing this is that, that there are no trivia. And so that there are things that we might think of as being sort of ordinary canceled checks, doctor's notes, um, programs from concerts. And and all of these things can actually yield some very important pieces of information, which the biographer then needs to try to piece together, especially in putting together biographies of 19th century women. And here's Julie Dobrow reading from her book, After Emily, at BIO's annual conference in May 2019. Mabel Loomis Todd stared unhappily out the window, her eyes filled with tears. The beauty of the May afternoon was heart-stopping. Though the morning had been hazy, by midday the sun had broken through, brokering a quintessential New England spring day. Newly opened lilac and crabapple blossom filled the air with their scents. The most deliciously brilliant sunny afternoon, she noted. Yet how, Mabel wondered, could such beauty exist on this day? She dressed with care, knowing that soon she would be among the Dickinson family and other neighbors, and that she would see the woman whom she referred to in her diaries and journals as my dear friend, Miss Emily Dickinson. 
Five years had passed since she'd met the Dickinsons, whose wealth, many civic and artistic activities, and long-standing ties to Amherst College made them one of the most influential families in town. Time had taken its toll. So much had happened, so many complications. The drama with Ned, the Dickinsons' eldest son, the unexpected death of little Gib, youngest of the three Dickinson children. And then there was her relationship with Emily's brother, Austin. The gathering at the Dickinsons was bound to be fraught with unspoken tensions. Babel carried with her a small bouquet of flowers, wildflowers, some of Emily Dickinson's favorites. She had painted a panel of Indian pipe wildflowers for Emily several years before. That without suspecting it, you should send me the preferred flower of life seems almost supernatural, Emily had written. And the sweet glee that I felt at meeting it, I could confide to none. Mabel had copied the note in its entirety into her journal, noting that it made me happier than almost any other I have ever received. Mabel thought about other notes and gifts she had received from Emily, their shared love of nature, and above all, their love of words. She thought of the many hours that she had happily spent at the homestead playing the piano and singing. Emily always rewarded Mabel's music with small offerings, a glass of wine on a silver salver, a flower from her conservatory, a piece of cake. And sometimes there was a poem, usually impromptu, evidently written on the spot. Brought up to appreciate great literature, a careful and voracious reader who kept lists of all the books she'd read, Mabel knew that Emily's poetry was unique. She was keenly aware that while Emily's style and punctuation was nothing like that of the well-known poets of the day, her verse was nevertheless strangely evocative and full of power. But despite these feelings of connection and friendship over the past four years, despite the frequently exchanged notes and gifts, despite living at home separated by less than half a mile, and despite the many connections between their two families, in fact, Mabel and Emily had never actually spoken. During all of the many times that Mabel had come to the homestead, Emily had listened, hidden from view. Once or twice, Mabel thought that she had caught a fleeting glimpse of the mysterious Emily flitting down the hall in ethereal white. This fine day in May might have been the only time that Mabel was truly ever to see Emily. And when she did see her that day, it would be for the last time. For inside the homestead, surrounded by family, Emily Dickinson lay dead in her white coffin, a little bunch of violets along with one pink cypridium around her neck. That was author Julie Dobrow reading from her book, After Emily, Two Remarkable Women and the Legacy of America's Greatest Poet, published by W.W. Norton and Company in 2018. Dobrow's book reading and interview were recorded during BIO's May 2019 conference held in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. You can read more about BIO on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C., Enzo De Palma created our theme music, and until next time, thanks for listening, and have a great day.